1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
1: And I'm Will Arimus.
2: Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America.
1: We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, November 7th. On today's show, we're going to talk about news this week of YouTube showing seriously creepy videos to kids on its YouTube Kids app, why this might be a symptom of a much deeper problem for internet companies. We'll also talk about the recent revelations from the so-called Paradise Papers about how Apple is moving its hordes of money around the world, potentially to minimize its tax bill. Are these practices illegal, and why does it matter? Later on, we'll be joined by Assistant Professor Whitney Phillips from Mercer University. She's the author of the book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture. And then we'll end with, as always, don't close my tabs, some recommendations of the best stuff we read this week from your hosts.
2: Okay, so podcast number two, we got our first one down and we got a lot of positive feedback. We got some constructive criticism, but overall, it seems like people don't hate us, which I always consider a win. Um, How are you doing this week, Will?
1: If people don't hate me, I'm doing great. (laughs) <laughs> How are you? April? How are you, April?
2: I'm good. I'm, I, I don't know if people hate me, but it seems like they didn't hate the podcast. And, and that's good enough for me for now, uh, especially because there's just so much news happening, as always. Um, well, let's start with something that you've been writing about this week and, and particularly something you published today about YouTube. Maybe you can fill us in.
1: All right. So this is a strange and disturbing story. Uh, It came up in the New York Times this weekend in an article called On YouTube Kids, Startling Videos Slip Past Filters. The story was about how parents who have given their kids, uh, you know, an iPad or a tablet with the YouTube Kids app, which is supposed to include nothing but parent-approved videos, would hear the kid suddenly screaming or in tears, they would come over and they would see something really grotesque on the screen. It would be a video of some of the kids' favorite characters, like a show called Paw Patrol, but there are these knockoff videos where they take the characters from Paw Patrol and they show them dying or or lying in a pool of blood. Um, and this happens with all kinds of shows. And we don't know who's doing this, but someone out there, either by hand or or perhaps per- automated it, through some automated system, is making creepy YouTube videos targeted at kids. And uh, parents are freaking out, understandably. I think what was really interesting here was not just the specific problem. I and mean, we're, we're pretty familiar by now with this problem w- whereby uh, a, a service like YouTube or, or Twitter or Facebook has content Posted there by people that other people find objectionable. The service promises to do better and to put in place new filters, and then we all move on. But there was this great post in Medium by an artist and writer named James Bridle. And he said, look, this is actually an instance of a much deeper problem here. And the problem is that the sheer scale of these platforms, and again, we're talking about automated platforms like YouTube and Facebook, Google search that are run by algorithms and software and not overseen by humans, their sheer scale makes it inevitable that there will be stuff like this. And not only that, but when you build an algorithm to decide what's okay for kids to see and what is not okay for kids to see or what people should see at the top of their Facebook feeds or their Google search results, there are always going to be ways to game that algorithm. And in most cases, it can be very profitable to do so. And so basically, YouTube and Facebook and Google and all the rest are creating conditions whereby stuff like this is bound to happen. There will be people trying to profit off of grotesque or fake or misleading or divisive content and that this is not just a problem to be addressed ad hoc by the tech companies, but it is a larger societal problem and that this is the way it's going to be now. I found that really troubling. He does not give any reassuring answers for how we solve this. I don't know how we solve this. April, how do we solve this?
2: I don't know. I mean, it's it's just it's so disturbing to think about, you know, if you're a parent and you search on YouTube that, for a video that you just see like the first frame of that's, you know, frozen in the, the screen before you press play. And it looks like just a fun animation that your kids are going to like and all these other people have watched it. And you walk away from the room and and, you know, before you know it, your kid is just consuming this really violent imagery that, you know, who knows where it came from. I mean, that's terrifying. And it's also an economic thing because we don't see this like on Netflix. Right. Or Hulu or the the paid services that also have kids sections. Right. Where and those are ostensibly, you know, curated more than YouTube. But, uh, you know, it it, it seems like. If there is going to be uh, a section on YouTube or searches that are aimed towards kids or some sort of curation that happens that where it's obvious that the audience is for kids, you know, I would hope that YouTube would not just put this in the hands of their software, you know, even if it is a huge problem, but but have some sort of curational component to it, some sort of top bar that populates the search before we see the algorithmically offered search something, you know, that that, that humans had some say in or some vetting Because kids are particularly sensitive. It's the same with breaking news, right? We would think that YouTube or Google would have a team of people there to kind of vet this stuff before it surfaces, you know, when the information that's being circulated is particularly sensitive. I know we need to move on from this, but I just want to bring up you. You had a very uh, uh, wonderful illustrative uh, analogy in a piece that you wrote today about this YouTube kids video mess saying that you know YouTube likes to claim that this is just such a small portion of their videos and you know like finding these is like finding a needle in the haystack but you don't want to have a needle in your haystack if you're a haystack maker right you you, you brought this 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 great um great analogy if you said imagine if it's like saying a a needle in a box of cereal that's deadly right or the one cow that that, or whatever livestock animal eats the needle that's in that haystack could die right and so so i think we just need to be really careful when we when we do hear these arguments to downplay the uh, problem of, of these search results uh that 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 that's exactly what they are They're arguments to downplay this problem and that you know if your kid sees it then it's a big problem to you
1: Right. Yeah. And it, it it's kind of like it, it kind of reminds me of the logic of oil companies after an oil spill. Well, they mm-hmm. say, well, well, that was that was a mistake. That's very rare. We'll make sure to clean it up. It won't happen again. It's but of course, it always does because <laughs> spills are part of the business of drilling for oil. I think this kind of abuse is part of the business of running an online platform uh, that that's monitored by algorithms.
2: So, you know, that was just one piece of disturbing news this week. Uh, Something else that I wanted to talk about that you brought up at the beginning uh, is uh, something that came out this weekend called The Paradise Papers. If I can just go into that a little bit. That was uh, on Sunday, a trove of kind of secret corporate documents from this multinational law firm named Applebee's were reported on by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Um, And, you know, in those documents included disclosures that, you know, linked a Russian billionaire whose name is Yuri Milner to uh, who was actually an early investor in Facebook and Twitter. And was using uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in funds that are linked to the Russian government to invest in those platforms. Uh, you know, he's he's no longer invested in them, but he was for quite some time and held substantial stakes. Um You know, and and when the Kremlin is linked to an investment in something, it's very rare, as experts have said, that this is not uh, with some strategic aims in mind. Right. That that this isn't just for commercial interest, but this is also potentially to wield some sort of state interest. And this couldn't have come at a worse time for these platforms because it's on the heels of uh, the mini marathon of hearings that we talked about last week, that these that these three platforms, uh, Facebook, Google and Twitter, uh, you know, sat in front of Congress and, and talked about Russian meddling you know, on their services in terms of uh, trying to manipulate American voters before and after the election. Now we find out that there's actually Kremlin money slushing around, at least at Facebook and Twitter, or there has been. Mr. Milner said that this is really not nothing more than a business deal or a commercial arrangement. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, the Russian connection and investments to Facebook and Twitter that came out. But uh, uh, yesterday, On Monday, uh, Apple uh, was revealed also through a leak associated with the Paradise Papers to uh, have relocated a set of ghost accounts that they had previously held in Ireland to uh, an island called Jersey, which is off the coast of France. Um, And there it's sheltered from paying taxes on global profits that it stores in those kind of ghost uh, businesses or ghost companies. Um, And again, it used the firm Applebee's to transfer those companies or to help rather get advisement on transfer. Bring those companies to Jersey and Applebee's, just to be clear, is the law firm that uh, that the documents from the Paradise Papers were leaked from. So it's not
1: my it's not my friendly neighborhood gathering place.
2: (laughs) No, but it is just what we just learned was just a lot of money slushing around. And just on top of that, I want to say something that's not related. But worth noting, just in terms of you know uh, money from other countries coming, and also sometimes questionable governments <laughs> coming into uh, coming into these tech companies. Uh, Saudi Prince uh, Alawid bin Talal was arrested this weekend, uh, and he w- is actually one of the largest investors in Twitter. He has three hundred and fifty million dollars worth of shares in Twitter's. Um, now, this wasn't related to you know anything with the Paradise Papers, but uh, but it is. Uh, It is demonstrative of just how much foreign investment is in these companies. He was rounded up, though, with dozens of other uh, government officials and what seems to be kind of a move from Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to consolidate power uh, under an anti-corruption campaign. So uh, lots of money uh, (laughs) news this weekend came out, uh, and particularly money that's from governments like Russia or Saudi Arabia that don't have the best track record of human rights that are uh, being invested into these companies.
1: All right. So, so April, you know more about this than I do, and I'm glad you're the one who broke it down for us because I could not have done that. Um, uh, one detail that stuck out from, from the story you wrote uh, the other day was that Tim Cook had said in, at a Senate hearing in 2013—in fact, I think we have the clip of that, don't we? We pay all the taxes we owe, every single dollar. We not only comply with the laws, but we comply with the spirit of the laws— We don't depend on tax gimmicks. We don't move intellectual property offshore and use it to sell our products back to the United States to avoid taxes. We don't stash money on some Caribbean island. All right. So he says we do not stash money on some Caribbean island. As April points out, that's technically true. Now they stash it on the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel, about 18, 19 miles off the coast of France. I mean, this this sure sounds shady. Apple insists it hasn't done anything illegal. How worried should we be about all this? I mean, is this just sort of standard issue corporate maneuvering that every every big business does? Um, or, you know, and, and these foreign ties, are these the kind of things that you just are bound to have if you are a big enough multinational corporation doing business in enough countries? Or is there something more specific about the tech industry that we should worry about here?
2: Uh, yes and no to everything that you asked. I, I would say that uh, I don't know if there's anything illegal here. It doesn't seem it seems like that this isn't necessarily illegal. This is something Apple's been doing in some way or another for a long, long time now. Uh, and it's not surprising that it tried to uh, find a, a, a new home to stash its cash after Ireland started to, to crack down on its kind of very relaxed tax structure. And moved to Jersey. Uh, But, you know, what it does show is that there's a lot of money that maybe, you know, would be going to the U.S. government that Apple's uh, trying to avoid taxes on or to other governments around the world where it's making money that Apple's trying to avoid taxes on. And we have to wonder, you know, where those taxes would go.
1: All right. So maybe what I'm taking away from this then is that it's not necessarily that anything illegal is going on, but it does get at this disconnect that, that we've been sort of digging into for years where these Silicon Valley companies like to present themselves as, uh, as sort of moral paragons in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Google's model is, motto is don't be evil. And so when they get caught doing the same shady stuff that all the other big businesses in the world do, it just looks, it looks particularly bad for them. Is, is, is that fair?
2: Yeah, it does. And I think just the other thing to remember is that these companies make so much money and they are just stashing it away. And that's always going to be shady.
1: Yeah, I just looked up how much I just Googled Apple cash on hand (laughs) and it's uh, it's actually two hundred fifty seven. No, that's an old figure. Two hundred. I can't even keep up with it. It's uh, more than 250 billion dollars. It was
2: reported 252 billion dollars this weekend, uh, you know, that that the company is at least storing
1: offshore. Well, no wonder they don't, don't want to get taxed on all that. Oh, and one other thing we should mention before we go into the break. I was late getting over to the studio because I was wrapping up a piece on Twitter's big change. They're ditching the 140 character limit. Now everybody can tweet 280 characters at a time. Twitter's about to get a lot wordier. Whether it's about to get better or worse remains to be seen.
2: I don't want it. I have an aversion to verbosity on social media, um, but I think a lot of people will appreciate having the more space.
1: Yeah, there was this great comment from a writer I saw when Twitter was first testing the change where they said, 140 characters was the best editor I've ever had.
2: I'm with that person. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll have our interview with writer and professor Whitney Phillips. We'll talk about trolls on online platforms like Facebook and Twitter and what they've done to stop them or sometimes haven't done. Our guest today is Whitney Phillips. She's an assistant professor of literary studies and writing at Mercer University. She's the author of This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture. She's also the co-author of a new book that came out this year that is called The Ambivalent Internet Mischief, Oddity and Antagonism Online. Uh, Thank you so much for coming with us, uh, Whitney. Thank you for having me. And so just to catch everyone up, this has been quite a year in uh, social media rules and, uh, kind of harassment online and how these companies like Facebook and Twitter actually take action. You know, we saw everything like from last month when Rose McGowan was temporarily suspended while she was in the middle of, you know, doing a lot of work on Twitter, uh, talking about people who are associated with Harvey Weinstein, who has been accused of multiple acts of rape and sexual assault in the Hollywood community. You know, we also then saw uh, Twitter. We've seen Twitter rather not take moves to take Donald Trump off the platform, although he does seem to have violated some of uh Twitter's user agreements. But of course, Donald Trump is very newsworthy. We also had Twitter uh, last month say that it has and it's now, you know, working on rolling out different tools uh, to uh, allow users to uh, better fight uh, hate speech that they may encounter on the platform. We've also seen Facebook take actions to uh, remove, you know, Nazi and alt-right accounts from Facebook and groups from Facebook. And so it's just been a a a huge conversation this year. And it's great to have Whitney with us. We want to start out kind of, Whitney, if you could help us understand exactly what a troll is, because it seems like the dial moves all the time on that. And it might help to kind of draw some lines first.
0: Yeah, this – so this particular question has become increasingly difficult for me to respond to over the last few years. And, you know, so I wrote a book on trolling and and that was published in 2015. And in the intervening two years, it's become – I often don't know how to respond to that because – you know the communities that I was studying—sort of a bit bounded community, subcultural community, self-identifying community—the borders around what qualified and what didn't was were pretty clear. Um, you could you could often just tell by listening to how somebody spoke as to whether or not they identified in these ways, and and then they would identify in those ways too. So, you know, you're pretty clear on on what you were dealing with. Um, but what has happened, especially as Sort of alt right in scare quotes um, activities have sort of aligned with pro Trump um, factions, and then also with established subcultural trolling factions, or at least adopted a lot of their um, subcultural stylings and, and a lot of their aesthetics. It's really difficult to tell if you're dealing with someone who would have qualified um, in the community that I wrote my book about, or if. You know, it's some sort of hybrid combination of the subcultural understanding of the term and then some new sort of Trumpish understanding of the term or if you're just talking about a neo-Nazi. And so trying to draw those lines can be very tricky and especially if you're trying to then extrapolate out to the question of, OK, what do we what do we do next? Um, so I find it's a fascinating question, but it just increasingly gets more and more difficult to answer as the years go by. What are these platforms then supposed to do? I mean, we've seen them attempt to
2: give users tools like muting and blocking, uh, but we also see very inconsistent enforcement of rules that they have on their platforms. Uh, you know, and it seems like also these platforms have given you know the alt right and hate groups kind of a place to congregate for a very very long time, and they very much you know consider these social media networks to be their home. Uh, so, so really, I know that's kind of a loaded question, but you know what is a platform to do or what have they done wrong or what could they do right
0: i mean i i think that platforms have a responsibility to cultivate the most robust um speech that they possibly can and that that means to me what free speech means to me um especially in the context of sort of social media moderation so not really talking about first amendment issues because that's kind of a separate issue but when mm-hmm. you're talking about moderation on social media private social media platforms um you know, I think that people talk about free speech often in a very kind of the framing is sort of facile in the sense that they're basically talking about defending hateful speech. But a more robust understanding or framing of the term, you really then become concerned about encouraging, um, you know, and privileging the most diverse. Kinds of speech for the broadest range of people possible. And the way that you do that is to make sure that there's not going to be a small faction attacking, um, you know, antagonizing and engaging in symbolic violence against um, particular communities. You cannot have robust free speech. If you have a certain group that is shouting everybody else down and making others feel like they can't meaningfully participate in the communication. So on free speech grounds, which to some people this might seem sort of oxymoronic, I guess, but on free speech grounds, I think it's really important to moderate in a robust way. Um, And I think that there's a responsibility to do that so that. Historically marginalized and underrepresented um, communities, communities, communities in danger, that um, is empowering for those voices.
1: Yeah, so I, I have a question, a couple questions along those lines. Um, the definition of free speech that you're talking about is is really interesting. Um, you're talking about how, to you, freedom of speech, it, it it also sort of involves a freedom from, right? There has to be sort of freedom from. Uh, harassment or abuse or, or hate speech in order to foster truly free speech among diverse types of people. Um, I find that really compelling. But just to take the other side for a second, um, you know, these tech platforms, uh, we talked last week actually on this show to one of the guys who helped to build uh, Facebook's ad tools. And he is actually worried that what will come out of our current crisis in, in platforms and online speech is that we end up delegating too much or giving too much power to these companies to decide what's okay to say and what's not okay to say. I mean, are, do we really expect uh, people at companies like Facebook and Twitter to have as nuanced an understanding as you just evinced of what constitutes free speech or, or how to foster that? I mean, and, and just to back that up with an example, the New York Times had a really fascinating interactive a couple of weeks ago where they did a quiz where you had to guess. Um, you had to look at different types of statements that were sort of racially charged or, or um, you know, could Potentially be seen as hateful or abusive. You had to guess whether Facebook would consider those to be hate speech or not. The results were astounding. I mean, so so Facebook, for instance, would consider white the statement "white men are assholes." Uh, Facebook considers that hate speech. And yet the statement, poor black people should still sit at the back of the bus, Facebook considers that okay and not hate speech. I mean, are these, <laughs> this is like, it's, it's dumbfounding. Are these the kind of people we really want making those decisions given the power that these platforms have over information in our society today? No,
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> so I, yes, I, I, I think that part of the issue here is that, so you have this ideal of, Yes, they they should take responsibility for the kinds of conversations that unfold. I stand by that at the same time, sort of acknowledging that I don't know, A, if I trust them to do it or B, if I trust them to do it right. Um, and part of the issue, and this is what this is part of the rollout, you know, Twitter's recent rollout of their sort of expanding what they mean by, you know, what kinds of speech is um, not acceptable on their platform and on on Reddit, too. You know, that both it was interesting because both of those platforms, when they rolled out these changes um, or clarifications, as, as they describe them, they both really emphasize this concept of context. Context was everything, you know, and on the surface, again, those are very nice words. And I I believe in those words and I and I, I would really love it if that could be true. But what we were just talking about a minute ago of the difficulty of establishing context when you're talking about online communication, I don't know. And I'm I've spent years now studying this exact question. I don't know how anybody could expect to do that with any consistency because you don't Even if you are – even if you, let's say, you're able as whatever person is responsible for making these decisions. So let's already assume that it's going to be a person and let's assume that they have an allotted amount of time to look at things on a case-by-case basis. So even if they spent 15 minutes per tweet that's got a question mark attached, there's already huge labor questions there because, I mean, how many – how many how many interactions are we talking about here that would be flagged in this way? But So let's say that someone could spend X amount of time looking at a certain interaction. Okay, that's cool. But if you don't know the person who's speaking, if you don't have a way of somehow contextualizing a statement within a broader lived experience and, a, and an embodied life, I don't know how you can fully assess context. Context, that it, 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 it's a very complicated, it's a difficult thing to establish, you know, that that creates this immediate problem um, of how, how are you, how are these people expected to establish context when that is precisely the thing that falls away when you're talking about online communication? Mm-hmm. And you know one one thing that comes to mind is I think a
2: lot of companies try to police hate speech as if it's a computer problem, right? As if it's some if then statement where you know it's it's some like very easy to define rule based solution. But the truth is, it seems that it's 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 not that. It's a very human problem, and they have to think about it in human terms. One more more question that that I have though, and 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 you kind of uh, alluded to this, is that you know when when we do see these platforms kicking you know, uh, people off for for saying things that are offensive or for saying things that they disagree with in, you know, inconsistent ways. One thing that does, you know, scare me with that is that, you know, what if they kick me off for saying something that they disagree with me with? You know, so, for instance, I regularly disagree with Google and Facebook. It's kind of my job as somebody who writes for Slayton about these companies to bring up problems I have with them you know, what if eventually they say that this is offensive, too? And so it seems like the lines can get kind of blurry. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts on that.
0: I, I think that the sort of slippery slope argument is compelling up to a point. I, I, two points. One, one, the first is that when you're having a conversation, and I'm not this isn't what you are doing, but oftentimes when people are you know, giving that sort of response of, well, what happens if they start censoring me? Um, One of the things that that often does is if you're having a conversation about the um, issues related to white supremacy or Um, you know, sexualized violence or harassment or whatever, it it tends to deflect the conversation away from that discussion, away from the cultural issues. And instead it becomes more of a, not a semantics issue, but an issue of sort of, well, what if it, what if if this person starts getting, you know, censored? What if that person, when the question at hand is, what do we do about white supremacy? What do we do about violence that's that's taking place now? Um, So, you know, that is that's the first point where i think that that it's a it's a it's a quick way to deflect a conversation even if you're not trying to although it's a valid point but the bigger point is like what do we do about nazis man i don't know um the second point is you know i think that when people talk about you know censoring offensive speech what that can sometimes do is make it seem like It's just an issue of, oh, my feelings kind of got hurt. Like, we're just going to start censoring people if they start hurting other people's feelings, which can open up all that totally is a slippery slope issue, because how how far down that rabbit hole do you want to go? But I think that there it's really important to posit a a significant difference between offensive speech and dehumanizing speech, Mm -hmm. that if you draw that line around, is this minimizing the value of an individual's life, that becomes a different conversation than have I kind of upset them, you know, because that, again, is a way of sort of deflecting the conversation away. What do we do about speech that essentially posits the idea that a certain classific- a certain category of person or an individual person shouldn't be allowed to live or shouldn't be allowed to live in a way that that um, they choose? And uh-huh. so I think that that line is a, an important one to maintain while also acknowledging that there are there, are, of course, um, so many different shades of this conversation to consider. And I've argued uh, quite a bit that it's good to go ahead and kick them off now while they pose
2: a violent threat. So I just want to be clear about that. But I did want to pose the, I think, kind of fair argument that that, you know, there's all kinds of uh, other uh, ways that this 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 conversation can go. Uh, Thank you so much for, for joining us, Whitney. It was great to have you. Oh, thank you guys so much.
1: Alright, when we come back, we'll have our little segment that we call Don't Close My Tabs. It's our recommendations on the most interesting things we read this week.
2: It's time for Don't Close My Tabs, a parting suggestion from each of us about something we read or saw this week. Anything that you saw that stuck out to you, Will?
1: All right. My tab this week is actually one that you, April, first showed to me. It's a website from the Mozilla Foundation. This is the organization based in the Bay Area that is affiliated with the popular Firefox browser. They also do open web advocacy. They have a guide now called Privacy Not Included, and it's sort of a funny dystopian take on a holiday gift guide. Basically, it's your guide to all the popular connected devices that are on sale this holiday season and whether they're going to spy on you and how they're going to do it and what their privacy policies are. So, for example, I go to the category toys, duckies, dolls, and more, I can browse around and see that, for instance, Hello Barbie is... Let's see what Hello Barbie is going to do to me. Hello Barbie will not spy on me with a camera. It will spy on me with a microphone. It will not track my location. Uh, I can find out if it requires an account or has privacy controls. Um, It does this for dozens of different gifts that you might want to buy this holiday season. I love it. I think we need more stuff like this out there.
2: I think it's so useful, right? Because... You know, there's all these labels on packaging and it's really even, you know reading the box, it's hard to know exactly what you're getting into. And often we don't know until a journalist digs in. And here we have Mozilla putting this great list together. And a lot of people really don't want to give a gift away that's going to be recording everything they say and shipping it back to some server that they have no accountability for. You know, I I, I know that I would be terrified if I gave someone a cool, you know, digital smart thing and then it actually ended up spying on them when they didn't want it. So I think this is just a great uh, service from Mozilla. And I do recommend people look at it.
1: All right, April, what's your tab this week?
2: So my tab is from the Associated Press, and it is a article that I just really... Um I thought was important to read, and I hope that uh, people, particularly tech workers in Silicon Valley, if you're listening to this, that you give it a read as well. It's called The Homeless Defy Stereotypes and Wealthy Silicon Valley, and it is about uh, people who work in areas where these tech companies are based, like Mountain View, uh, you know, further down south of Peninsula. Mountain View, of course, is where uh, the company Google is based, um, and people who work at hotels and just kind of the service workers around there and also teachers and and, and uh people who, who work at community colleges and, and places like that who are homeless, who are sleeping in their cars, uh, who are, you know, amongst all this wealth, living in RVs and barely making it month to month, unsure if they can pay medical bills. And it just is it, it shows how stark the wealth is in this part of the country, in this part of the world, and that there's still just an immense amount of poverty. And when you see this amount of wealth amassed so quickly, we see a wealth gap as well, and uh, clearly, even if these companies are trying to, to to do good in some way, it's obviously not trickling down even in their own neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, this is this is important because the the link between these tech companies' uh, riches and the the uh, poverty and homelessness that people in these communities are experiencing. This is not an accident, right? this is the the tech companies have generated this massive wealth which has created and they've created a huge demand for jobs um, and so uh, that drives up the price of housing. I actually want to introduce a, a a a different villain here than most people would probably point to um, maybe not you know maybe not the worst villain, maybe not on purpose, but for years I actually covered, local politics in the Bay Area. And a lot of the communities along the peninsula are happy to have these huge companies uh, like Facebook is based in Menlo Park. Google is based in Mountain View, the, uh, Apple and Cupertino. They love having these companies there because it brings uh, prestige and money to the city. But then their residents consistently vote against the type of affordable housing that would be needed uh, in order to support the the demand for housing there. And so the housing prices skyrocket. You end up with people who are out of a home, not because even necessarily they're out of a job. They just literally can't afford uh, to, to live there. And it's it's really sad.
2: And I think one thing to keep in mind here is that for a lot of these people, they're actually customers of the companies that they may be a security guard at or work in the cafeterias of uh, because they, you know, use an iPhone and they use Google search and their smartphone might actually be their only connection to the Internet because they don't have uh, a hardline broadband connection, you know, in their RV or their car. And, And that also includes kids who need the Internet to do homework and things like that. And so. Just to reiterate, I do hope people take the time to read this article. Uh, It's in the AP, and uh, I think it's just going to provide a a very, very necessary uh, level of understanding about the entire economy uh, in these areas where these companies are based. So uh, one more thing that I really, Tab, I really don't want anyone to close is this great package that my colleagues, including Will, did at Slate this week, looking at the push notifications from a very, very difficult year in news. Uh, Slate got all the push notifications from the New York Times and, and made a fantastic interactive with a great set of stories to go along with it to help kind of navigate how we might be just exasperated after this news cycle. And I really recommend folks check it out.
1: Oh, April, is going to give you a hard time for trying to squeeze in a second tab, but then you had to go and recommend something. That I that I contributed to, so I can't <laughs> I can't criticize that. I, I, it was a great package. My piece was a, a small part of this uh, of this wonderful set of stories about push alerts and what they're doing to us.
2: Well, that's our show. You can get the updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at If then Pod, and you can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser One L,
1: and I'm at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Whitney Phillips, for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at WPhillips49. That's two L's, not one. WPhillips49.
2: And if you have a question or comment for us, you can email us as well at slate.com.
1: If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Allis and A Room with a VU studio in Santa Barbara.
2: Thanks to Northgate Studios in Berkeley and Spencer Silva for engineering. Thanks to Josephine Bennett and the Macon GPB studio in Georgia for their help today. We'll see y'all next time.